Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. You've heard the expression, the bee's knees? Well, today we have the hives live. The Swedish rock stars performed in Atlanta last weekend, and City Lights senior producer Kim Drogues caught up with them at the Shaky Knees Music Festival. Plus, singer-songwriter Rabbi Micah Lapidus has written a song inspired by an all-time hero, the late, great Hank Aaron. We'll celebrate our Atlanta Braves 2021 National League champions playing in the World Series with Rabbi Micah and pianist Joe Alterman performing Keep Swinging in memory of Hank Aaron later this hour. First, Mitchell Anderson has played multiple roles successfully on stage, on screen, and in real life. During COVID isolation, the Atlanta chef, restaurateur, and popular actor decided to write a one-man show about his many experiences, a cabaret about his career in Hollywood coming out as a gay man in front of a live audience and where that all has led him. The title of the show is You Better Call Your Mother, playing at Synchronicity Theater November 4th through the 7th. Mitchell Anderson joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to talk to you. I'm curious about why you wanted to create a show about your life and who encouraged you to do so. Well, I just turned 60. And uh, the beginning of the show, I talk about being in my Metro Fresh kitchen in the middle of the darkest December in modern history last year, thinking about this little boy who was a sort of overachiever, this little nerdy little boy. And he grew up and he went to have a career in Hollywood. And then he wound up in Atlanta at age 60 in the Metro Fresh kitchen selling soup for a living. And I thought, well, that seems like an interesting story. How did that all happen? So it was literally a New Year's resolution. In December, I said, I'm going to create my own show and I'm going to make it a resolution and I'm going to do it in honor of my 60th birthday. So I reached out to fellow Juilliard alum and cabaret artist, amazing actress and singer, Courtney Collins, who I knew sort of, peripherally, but not really well, and said, how do I do this, Courtney? And she gave me some advice. She said, just sit down and start writing little stories and writing moments in your life that you might want to tell on stage and write down some songs that you might want to sing and see what happens. And then literally about a month later, I had this show. I so admire Courtney Collins, and I think it's just fantastic that she will be directing your show. I also know about your love of cabaret, which I share. In fact, in After Forever, there's a terrific cabaret scene with Katie Huffman, no less, who is also a friend of yours, isn't she? 
Yes. Oh my gosh. That's such a beautiful scene. And actually in season one and season two, there's uh, cabaret scenes that they are taking full advantage of Katie's amazing voice and stage presence and talent. Well, what is it about cabaret that you think so beautifully suits your autobiographical show? Well, interestingly enough, Lois, I think when you see this actual production, you're going to think more play with music than cabaret. It was my intention to do a cabaret. And that's sort of what I reached out to Courtney to figure out how to do. And then when I started writing, because I think I am sort of a writer, these little monologues came out that are fully fleshed out, more literary and actually more theatrical moments from which the songs come. So in my mind, I was going to do a show that was, you know, typical cabaret, patter, 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 song, patter, 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 song. But what has happened is I have these chapters that, you know, four, five, six minute monologues from which songs emerge, um, much more musical-like, honestly. And that was not necessarily my intention. It just is what what happened. Is it original music or are they songs already established? Yes, they're established songs from the musical canon of Broadway, pop, standard, just things that made sense to tell the story where it is. You know, there's a song from Falsettos, for instance, that I happened to see uh, four years, five years ago uh, on Broadway, right after my father had passed away. Um, and there's a song at the end of the first act that Christian Boyle sang in the um, in the revival called Father to Son that absolutely made me weep. So when I'm thinking about my relationship with my father, I knew that I wanted to sing that song. Kid, be my son. What I've done to you is rotten. See, I was scared. I kept marching in one place, marching in time to a tune I'd forgotten. I loved you. I loved you. I meant no disgrace. So I I reached out into my past into and and re actually reached out to friends like you mentioned after forever. I reached out to my friend Kevin, who's also an amazing singer and cabaret artist. And, and got ideas from him. But, but basically the songs do come out of sort of the emotional state. The play drives the strong songs rather than the songs drive the words. Okay. Without a spoiler alert, can you tell us the story behind the title, You Better Call Your Mother? I can, and it's not really a spoiler because it actually is in the synopsis that I have on the ticket, the ticket website. I came out at the 1996 Glad Media Awards in Los Angeles. I, had, I was playing a gay character on Party of Five, and during that night, I was asked by more than one reporter about what it's like to play a gay character when you're straight. And... You know, at that time of my life, I was 35. I had been sort of super political and raising money for HIV and AIDS and working on the Clinton campaign and the boxer campaign. And it just didn't make sense for me anymore to deflect that question, um, as most actors did at that time in the mid 90s. So for some reason that night, I came out out on stage and I said, I can't answer that question by this reporter because I play a gay character on TV and I also happen to be gay. As I walked off stage, this lovely man, a publicist for GLAAD, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you better call your mom. <laughs> so that's where that comes from. But as it turns out, I, I told my sisters that 
I was going to call it, you better call your mother. And as it turns out, I remember this. My mother used to say that when we would go off to camp or we would go off to college or, you know, later in life when we would visit and then leave, she would always say, you better call your mother. So I think it it has lots of meanings. (laughs) When you first describe how this show came to mind and being in those dark days of December 2020, it almost sounded like you were an observer, you know, one of those out-of-body experiences where you're looking down on Mitchell Anderson and, you know, in the third person, he's telling you about this. What was the impact on you personally after writing these revealing anecdotes about childhood and family life that you knew would be performed in front of a live audience? That's a really great question, Lois. I do feel like maybe everybody in the world in the last 18 months feels like they're an observer of something out of body, you know, just that whole living through and trying to get through the COVID experience. But because I'm digging up these moments of my life that were significant, that I look at and say, wow, those are where the turns happen. That's how this part of me fleshed out. You know, this, that's how I grew up, right? And I do think that there is a certain amount of pleasant reflection, maybe, Um, Because I think that by the time I am my age now, I get to look back and go, oh, yeah, it was all okay. It turned out okay, you know, and I think it actually turned out kind of important. I think the life I've led has been interesting, diverse. I've been touched by love and success and hard work. And I think at the end of the day, if I can look back and say that my parents were proud of me, I think that that's an amazing thing. And there is a certain amount of, I don't, I don't want to say pride because I don't think that that's what you're supposed to feel, but there is a certain amount of satisfaction maybe that I will be able to tell these stories on stage and people will be able to relate their own experiences to my experience. That is great. Especially, I think if you're, you know, I, I'm 60, my friends from college are all 60. We've all either had aging, you know, ailing or dead parents, you know, and we, we get to a point in our lives where we, we become the older generation, right? And I think that that's really what I'm experiencing now in terms of how I observe the last 60 years and how fortunate that I have this sort of ability to both be a storyteller as an actor and as a singer but also as a writer. I'm excited to be able to do all of that. Well, that talent for writing comes through in your cookbook, Food and Thought, which is as much a memoir in many ways as it is a cookbook, although I use it as a cookbook time and time again. And you write about your husband, Richie Arpino, in the cookbook. You write lovingly about your family. I'm curious if you talked with your relatives about creating this one-man show. Did did you ask them to verify any of the stories or ask if they were self-conscious about any of them? Well, that's an interesting thing. Um, I have two sisters, I have three sisters, two of whom are uh, have decided to take a four-week sit-down adventure in Atlanta right now. They're out bass fishing on Lake Alatoona as we speak. They, uh, I did a little preview stand-up reading of it on Sunday in my living room, and I was a little nervous, I have to say, because I do believe in family, and I say this in the show, we all have our own story you have your own perspective on what happened, right? So when I talk about gardening with my dad and I say my brothers and sisters 
didn't love gardening quite as in the same way I do. And my younger sister said, well, hey, wait a minute. I remember gardening with dad too. (laughs) (laughs) But from my perspective, I was totally alone with dad. You know, so yes, there is a certain amount of trepidation. um, And I talk very lovingly, yet very honestly about my relationship with my mom and my dad. And, you know, part of that has to do with my coming out story. And, you know, the difficulty of coming out to my parents and how that was, how that affected my relationship with them. And uh, it was, a, it was a challenging time, you know, and that part of it, putting that in words and performing that in front of them was scary for me. And yet they didn't have a bad reaction. So I, I, I think that's positive. I think that's good because ultimately it truly is about love and while there can be conflict in the middle of that, and obviously conflict makes good theater, at the end, I think it never comes from a place of anger or soreness, or it only comes from a place of love. Well, on the topic of love, would you tell us a bit about how you and your husband, Richie Arpiner, met? Well, that I don't want to do too much of a spoiler alert, okay. but Richie gets a couple chapters in the second act of the show because it was quite a meeting. I was asked to come to Atlanta in 1996 for the human rights campaign, and I met him that night. But as it turns out, I had met him two years earlier in West Hollywood, and that's all I'm going to say. All right, we'll have to. (laughs) Please come to the show and find out more. Yes, that's a great tease. But the good news is that we've been together for 24 years. So it was, you know, fate brought us together and it it has worked out and the rest is history, as they say. Well, it was Richie who brought you to Atlanta. How did your move from the West Coast change your career path? When I was in my late 30s, and certainly after I came out at the GLAAD Awards, my career path changed. I was traveling all over the country for different political organizations and community centers, and I was telling my story, and I I became much more than an actor for hire, or I thought my life was much more than, you know, whether or not I booked a, a guest star part on some television show. In my late 30s, I just decided that I would be happy if I found another path. And because I had been with Richie for a couple of years, Richie lived in Atlanta, I had a geographical out, as it were. I didn't have to stay in Los Angeles. So when I moved to Atlanta in 2002, I was hunting around for another career. And fortunately for me, I ran into or was introduced to Super Jenny Levison, who is my most dear friend and mentor. And, you know, we, you, she and I have been on before um, for other projects, other artistic projects. And she, you know, showed me a way to cook that I responded to. And now, oddly enough, I've been in the kitchen making soup for a living for as long as I was in Hollywood making television. My goodness. To the delight of many of us who know Metro Fresh. 20 years after leaving television, you returned to star in the web show After Forever. And I remember we were still working in person. We were at the WABE studios when you showed up, and I just remember hugging you because I was so grateful you were alive, Mitchell. (laughs) No. (laughs) It was such... Well, thank God. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was just such a tearful part of the first episode of the early part of this series, but it it actually turns into something of a a lighthearted theme of the show. You... Um, and Kevin Spiritus play Brian and Jason, this loving gay married couple tackling middle age until Jason receives a dire medical diagnosis. What 
was it like returning to work on screen? Honestly, that was so weird because I hadn't been on screen in almost 20 years when I did the first season of After Forever. It was a little bit like riding a bike, and yet it was super exciting and new. The part is incredibly rangy, and as you alluded to, it uh, gives you all sorts of sort of deep, dramatic, tragic stuff to work with, but also this sort of fun, lighthearted part of Jason that comes out after he's dead, oddly enough. And so for me, it was great. And because I was returning to an on-screen television thing that from which I needed nothing except the experience, it was incredibly freeing. I felt like I'd never been as good on screen as I was in that show in that season. And I loved it. It was amazing. What can you tell us about your music director, Bill Newberry? How'd you get together? I've been fortunate enough uh, to have been asked over the years by Super Jenny to participate in various musical cabarets that she's put on for her uh, restaurant and just, you know, because she's always producing something. And uh, got to know Bill over the years through that. When we were doing falsettos, he was going to be the musical director. So I went and sang for him and we worked together a little bit then. And just because I had a great relationship with him, he's, a, he's just such a wonderful musician and talented teacher. And I knew that for me, because I haven't sung like this in 20 years. So for me to get back on that horse, you know, I, I need a big step ladder, as it were. So, <laughs> uh, but it's been super fun. And I'll tell you, the fun thing is that Richie was sitting in our living room the other day listening to me sing, and he he couldn't put it together that that was me. Like that, because I hadn't sung like that in so many years. So that was super fun. So I'm, I'm excited to, to be on stage doing it as well. Atlanta restaurateur and popular actor Mitchell Anderson. His cabaret, You Better Call Your Mother, will be on stage at Synchronicity Theater November 4th through the 7th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment... Swedish rock stars, The Hives, you're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The Shaky Knees Music Festival was this past weekend, and City Lights senior producer Kim Droves went to check it out. She filed this report. This past weekend's Shaky Knees Festival brought some amazing musical talents to Atlanta, including St. Vincent, Idols, Alice Cooper, Modest Mouse, and a band that I was particularly excited to see, The Hives. For the unfamiliar, The Hives are a Swedish rock band that rose to prominence during the garage rock revival. Their second album, Vinny Vitty Vicious, was released in 2000 and is often considered their breakthrough record. It had several hit singles, including Hate to Say I Told You So. Be 
The Hives have a well-earned reputation as one of the best bands to see live, and their onstage energy at Shaky Knees did not disappoint. I caught up with the band prior to their set, and frontman Helen Pele Omquist and guitarist Nicholas Arson shared some stories from their time in lockdown, as well as their secret to creating really good live stream shows. Hey guys, welcome back to the U.S. Oh yeah. Thank you. You seem to have kept busy during lockdown. Your worldwide web tour of live stream shows was really impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Now that you mention it, I was all yeah. excited again. <laughs> yeah, I kind of froze when you said we did a lot of stuff. I was like... Yeah, those were really good. Yeah, they were great. Some Thank of our you. finest work. How did you keep the energy so high without having an actual audience there? We had really loud audience noise in the room we were playing. It was, it really worked. It was weird. When we walked on stage the first time and then just went Everybody's like, it feels, it kind of feels right. Like it really worked. I mean, we did a lot. We did one of those digital shows without crowd sounds and we hated it. We were terrible, like just stressed out. So then we had a guy sampling everything, like sampling actual crowd sounds from the towns we were supposed to play. Like if we did Sydney, we had from previous Sydney shows, we had live sounds from that show. And also people could phone in and scream, the hives are the best. Thanks for coming back to Sydney. Well, because you could tell that most of these live streams weren't actually live streams. Like, it's, they all, like when we started getting in contact with companies to do the live stream, everyone's like, yeah, and then we need this show four days before we air it. Like, what are you talking about? So therefore we had to like construct our own solution on how to do it because we wanted to do it live and then we wanted to prove that it was live so people could phone in and like pick up the phone and talk stuff. I think that it being live was one of the most important elements that made it so good because I mean, we had that phone where people could phone in and we would also, like if we had a missed call, like with that phone that we had never stopped ringing. So we just, you know, kept ringing people up, you know, hey, we had a missed call. And they were like, oh, you know, and they were all partying. And just us and them partying at the same time, it really made you feel like, you know, there was a connection there. Yeah, we're, we had like 1,500 missed calls after every show. Yeah. A lot of people to call back. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. So you played a late night show last night here in town. How'd it go? It was great. It was really good. Great crowds. And uh, we really liked that room, center stage. We played there before. It's, it's a cool place. That is excellent. I was pretty jazzed to see that you guys had the Alive for your opening act. Our City Lights host, Lois Reitzes, interviewed them just last week. They are such cool and talented kids. Yeah, we were that age when we started. Yeah, that's right. So what was it like playing a show with kids that were the same age? Did it bring back memories? It's fantastic. I mean, just just uh, sitting around backstage and, and like their road crew being their parents. It's 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 uh, really cool. You know, and, and, you, and you watch these guys play and yeah, the first thing you think, obviously, is that Jesus Christ, these guys are young. <laughs> that's like, yeah. that's, uh, you, there's no way past that. And then you listen, and then you, you, you know, try to catch what they, what they're trying to do, and and just put a smile on my face. Be funny if in 30 years they're still going. Well, that would be absolutely awesome for them. How do they get there? What is the secret to your longevity? Well, it doesn't hurt that we have the fountain of youth in our backyard. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like it, I don't know how it works, but I think it's like, Buzz Osborne from the Melvins had something to say about that I thought was pretty clever. The secret just keeping the band together is to never quit because <laughs> like it's kind of like then you're still together right <laughs> no it's really cool i think like it it's, uh, blows the mind i didn't expect us to be together this long and i certainly didn't expect us to be good for this long i think that's the hardest part Pele, did i hear you once quoted as saying when you were younger of course that nobody should ever put out more than three records how do you feel about that now no, I think we had like an idea that nobody ever did three records in a row that were good. When we formed, we didn't think any band ever made more than three good records. So we figured like, okay, so if we're going to do this right, we should also only make three good records. But then when we'd made like two to three records, we realized that, oh, I like the fourth record too now. That's what keeps us going. We start liking like late period ACDC and Rolling Stones and Ramones. Then yeah. you can kind of go on forever. But it also doesn't, I mean, if, if we're talking about it being, you know, like we almost been a band for 30 years, it, does, it feels like four weeks, you know, in certain cases, it feels like time moved fast. <laughs> yeah, that's the secret to longevity, a really bad perception yeah, of perception time. Yeah, perception of time. <laughs> like, and that's what we all have in common. <laughs> yeah.
I heard another way you guys kept busy during lockdown was by writing a lot of new songs. Yeah, we have a lot of songs that we're really proud of, but we should just get around to recording them and putting them out, which, you know, maybe we should have done a long time ago. But there's a lot of good stuff, I think. We can play them live and be proud of them, but we also want to record them and be proud of them. Yeah, there's some of our best stuff, I think. Well, that's killer. I can't wait to hear you guys perform and hopefully hear some of those new songs. Thank you so much for making time to chat with me. I know time is short and you guys got to get ready for the show, so I will let you go. But thank you so much. It doesn't matter. We have no perception of time anyway. Yeah, no. You can interview us for weeks. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Kim. Take care. Yeah, I Swedish rock stars, The Hives, talking with City Light senior producer Kim Droves. More information about the band and their recent worldwide web tour is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, a special tribute song to the late great Hank Aaron. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. How about them Braves? winners of the 2021 National League pennant and playing in the World Series. Game three of the series is tomorrow, October 29th. While our team has had several legends grace the field, there's perhaps none better love than the late, great Hank Aaron. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview with the photographer Ron Sherman and hear the backstory of his iconic photo of Aaron's record-breaking 715th home run. First, the radio premiere of a song that friend of the show, Rabbi Michael Lapidus, wrote as a memorial tribute to Hank Aaron called Keep Swinging. The song features another friend of the show, pianist Joe Alterman, and was inspired by this quote from Hank Aaron. My motto was always to keep swinging, whether I was in a slump or feeling badly or having trouble off the field. The only thing to do was keep swinging. comes at you fast or throws you a curve whatever you do keep swinging when some say you can't and others say you won't whatever you do keep swinging well sometimes you'll take the pitch sometimes you'll swing and miss but if you watch a strike pass by you wish that you'd stepped up to the plate to show world you're great your motto was always keep swinging keep your eye on the ball no matter the call run the bases round as your spikes hit the ground with your head held proud and a smile for the crowd keep on keep on keep on keep on swinging oh making the cut just isn't good enough you gotta stay at the top of your game when you're down in a slump and you think your number's up whatever you do keep swinging keep your eye on the ball no matter the call run the bases round as your spikes hit the ground with your head held proud and a smile for the crowd Keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on swinging. 
starts to howl and things get real Just remember this advice and don't think twice Grab your bat, step on up and keep swinging Keep your eye on the ball no matter the cost Run the bases round as your spikes hit the ground With your head held proud and a smile for the crowd I keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on swinging When the game is done and your jersey's been hung And the world celebrates how far you've come you inspire and help reach high for your legacy will always be keep swinging your legacy will always be keep swinging yeah your legacy will always be your legacy will always be your legacy will always be keep swinging keep swinging Written and performed by Rabbi Michael Lepidus with pianist Joe Alterman. Let's keep this baseball love going and listen back to my interview with the Atlanta photographer Ron Sherman. His shot of Hank Aaron rounding the bases during his record-breaking 715th home run is nothing short of iconic. When Sherman joined me via Zoom on City Lights earlier this year, he began with how he got involved in photography. My first published photo was in junior high school. It was a Polaroid picture I had shot of uh, of a meeting. Uh, but uh, I got involved in newspaper photography because I used to uh, freelance uh, in high school for the... Uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer, Cleveland Press, and Cleveland News covering football. And then the editors started saying, well, can you cover a second game? We'd like you know, more pictures. And my best day was uh, where I had two pictures published in each of the three newspapers. And I think I made a total of $60 that day. And that, that was good money back in 1958. And it, that started my career in newspaper photography. And uh, eventually the army decided they wanted me. So I spent a year in Vietnam and coming back. My mom said, well, you know, I don't know if this uh, photography gig will be good for you. Why don't you go to graduate school? So uh, I got an assistantship at uh, Syracuse and went to graduate school. And in, in intermediate time between uh, Vietnam and graduate school, I got married. And uh, we decided we needed to move someplace warmer than Syracuse, New York, which was cold up there. And we came down to Atlanta in uh, 71. It was 70 degrees, dogwoods were out, the azaleas were out, and it was an easy sell to move down here. Would you talk about the day Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record? That was an interesting, in, interesting day. Uh, didn't realize what was going to happen, but um, I, I was uh, on assignment for UPI, and I decided um, basically they let me go where I wanted to go <clears throat> as a freelance photographer. I, I call that self-unemployed because you were employed by various clients and, and publishers, and then when the assignment was over, you were unemployed. So uh, a standing joke, but it, in truth, that's what it really was about. I picked the third base side, which uh, there was a uh, photo box between home plate and third, and it was a good view of when Hank would hit his, uh, uh, he was right-handed, so he would end up looking towards towards our side of the, of the dugout. We were there early on. We were there about two hours before the game to start, and there was a lot of people there, celebrities, uh, the governor was there and uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was there and uh, a number of other celebrities uh, talking and, and chatting and stuff like that. Then the game started and um, his first time at bat, uh, he hit a couple of foul balls and I don't remember, I don't think he got on base, but uh, every time he swung the bat, somebody took a picture. There were probably a hundred credential photographers there. And then the second at bat is when he hit the home run. And uh, I had my color camera up to, to shoot color of him hitting the ball. 
everybody in the in the universe uh, got that picture. And then I picked up my other camera, which had black and white film in it, and I just followed them around the bases. And through my lens, I saw something. Uh, the, the two boys came out there, and I uh, I kept taking pictures, taking pictures until uh, he came down to home plate, and then all the every, all the teammates greeted him uh, uh, so that he could hit the the, the home plate and uh, celebration and. Uh, then they brought the ball in from the outfield, and so we got pictures of uh, of him holding the ball up, and uh, then the game continued. Uh, I didn't think much about the picture until uh, UPI had a darkroom there, and they were processing the film. They came up with a photo, looked at it, they said, this is a keeper. Would you describe that photo? The picture turned out, and I, I looked at my negatives again recently, and I only had this one shot, one image of the two boys tapping him on the shoulder. As he came around second base to third base, there was an opening there where I followed him around and they touched him on the shoulders and then they, they moved on. So these teenagers rushed onto the field to yes. congratulate him. Yes, they did. And that's all, you know, that's all it was about. They did hold these guys. They they didn't arrest them. They kept them uh, isolated until the end of the game and then uh, let them go because they realized it was just a prank and and no harm, no foul kind of thing. So the picture editor at UPI transmitted the photo and um, the quick end of the rest of the story is no one knew for 40 some years who made the photo because UPI used initials RS for the guy who sent transmitted the photo slash RS for me as the photographer. What amazed me was I checked a few years later about the photo because I was surprised not to see it in Life Magazine or in Sports Illustrated, and I checked the archives, the AP archives, um, Life Magazine archives, all the agencies that, that I knew about, and no one had the photo. And that to me was astonishing. So it took 45 years for you to be credited with taking that photograph. Yes, and the only reason that it, it happened was um, at, right after the event, I was so uh, friends with the executive picture editor at UPI. He called me up and said, Ron, we want to borrow the negative, make some large prints. So I cut the frame before and the frame after, uh, 36 exposure roll, and sent it up to them. Totally forgot about it. I mean, when you're out working as, as a photographer, a freelance photographer especially, you're not sure what, what's happening next. And so the next job comes up, and that's what you're, you're zeroing in on. You don't worry about what you've already done. Ten years later, I'm looking at a TV guide magazine that had uh, Oprah Winfrey on the cover where they had supposedly put her head on somebody else's body for the cover shot, which made a lot of controversy back then. And I opened it up and there was a top 100 news events for the whatever it was the last decade or, or however long it was. And uh, Hank Aaron was number 10 with my photo that said Bettman Archives Corbus. I says, hey, uh, I ought to find out what uh, what's going on with, with that photo. Why do they have it? Well, as it turned out, UPI sold their archives to Bettman Archives, and Bettman Archives, which is a photo agency, Corbis then bought the, that. And what happened was my negative ended up with these agencies. So once I realized that, I was able to um, impress upon them that that was my negative, because as working for UPI back then, I kept the copyright on all my photos. UPI didn't own it. I was a freelancer being paid as a freelance basis. If UPI didn't own the photo, why were you not credited? Well, because the picture that went out just had my initial on there. And and was that common? Oh, yes. Oh. Yeah. AP, and uh, when they sent out their captions, they did put their photographer's name, you know, photo AP photo, photo by so-and-so. But UPI, back as far as long as I remember, were only initials used. So th- the idea of intellectual property eh, didn't exist then? Not so much? 
Oh, yeah, it did very much. In fact, uh, I was um, unrepentant in my uh, exercise of my uh, pictures even back then about somebody using my photo uh, without payment. So, but it, it was um, in a way a lot easier because there, there weren't pictures on the internet that people could just borrow or steal or whatever, however you want to call it. So, and it really wasn't, it wasn't on the front of my mind about what was going on until I realized that, hey, I never got that negative back and um, I, I sure would like to get it back. So I got it back and fast forward, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jay Kaufman was um, also at that event. He was also shooting for UPI. And he calls me up and says, hey, Ron, your photo is hanging in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I said, say what? And so um, he put me in touch with the archivist there that he was talking with because he was, he was trying to get some of his photos at the, in the Hall of Fame. And we had a discussion and, and I said, well, how, how did Baseball Hall of Fame get the photo? And the archivist went down and pulled a picture out and there was Corbus stamp on the back. So they bought a eight by 10 print from uh, Corbus to, for their archives. And at one time they blew it up to a five foot by eight foot. And Jay says, you know, the picture doesn't, it, it's, it's blown up from a really small file. It really doesn't look that great. So I made a deal with um, the Baseball Hall of Fame and if they would publicize that Ron Sherman took that photo uh, I would get a high-res photo uh, image to them that they could then redo the uh, the picture that was hanging there. And they did that, and they sent me a copy of the picture hanging with a little plaque that said photo by Ron Sherman. And uh, so the rest was history, but it took till uh, October of 2019 to um, get that, that credit for it. Really, nothing's happened until... I was written up in a couple of magazines, but nothing really until now that Hank has passed. And um, there's been a couple of stories written about that picture and and my photo. Ron, when you were developing that photo in the darkroom, did you realize you'd captured something extraordinary? Not at the time. It was just... Another good photo that I was pleased with. The editor, you know, deciding what got sent out and what didn't get sent out, uh, realized right away that it was, you know, it was a good photo. And uh, it really didn't dawn on me until the realization was no one else got that photo. I mean, I recently saw a Sports Illustrated photo, but it only had one, of the, it was in color. It only had one of the boys near him. The other boy was few feet behind them, and that was as close as anybody got. Sure. But, you know, with these horrific things we've learned about death threats and, and uh, threats of harm to his family, um, first, it's amazing that two random teenagers made it onto the field. Hank Aaron doesn't look upset. I guess I guess they were <laughs> conveying that they were thrilled and not threatening. Exactly. I we found out later that there were I don't know how many uh, dozens of um, plainclothes police, um, Georgia State Police, uh, City of Atlanta. Um, I think even the FBI had uh, agents throughout the stadium. But yeah, that was um, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, and then they just went on their merry on their merry way and the game went on. And um, as I, as the official said later on after they let him go was no harm, no foul. And uh, and something those boys will remember uh, for, for the rest of their lives. And for the rest of your life, will you feel excited that your photo of this historic accomplishment Hanks in the Baseball Hall of Fame Museum. Yes, that's. <laughs> um, I, I have uh, another photo from Atlanta that's in the African American uh, Museum in, in DC. Uh, but uh, but this one outranks anything because, you know, the, the thing is, photos printed in publications are fleeting. I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds of photos published in magazines, annual reports and stuff mm. like that. 
And especially in a newspaper, you know, we read it one day and it's in the birdcage the next. And this one will be there, I guess, as long as the Baseball Hall of Fame is, uh, is open because uh, his accomplishment will not fade from history. And uh, I'm a small part of it, but uh, I'm glad I got it. And uh, it, it was sort of crept up on me in terms of um, the importance that photo became over the years. Yeah. What photo of yours hangs in the National Museum of African American History? It's actually a very simple photo. I, I did a lot of, um, of coverage of Atlanta for various magazines. And uh, one of the magazines was doing a story on middle-class blacks in Atlanta who lived in Atlanta and what they did, their daily lives. So I went out and uh, photographed uh, the people out uh, shopping and uh, the picture that's hanging in there in their permanent exhibit is a photo of a, of a middle-aged, uh, I'd say a 30, 35 year old man washing his car in front of his home. Just a very, very simple photo. Photographer Ron Sherman from our Zoom conversation earlier this year. You can hear the entire interview on our website wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., lace up those roller skates and get ready to feel mellow. A new production of the musical Xanadu is at Outfront Theater. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.